my intuition is that I created an open door and I created a safe space. And I didn't tell a bunch of details. Every single detail is in the art, which is what's magical about visual art. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kefoffer here. Welcome back to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Just in case you're new to the show, yes, it's a podcast all about grief, exploring the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. So together, we're going to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're here. You first met today's guest, my dear friend and artist, Chrissy Tegerstrom, back in season one. In the episode, A Grief Journey Delayed, Chrissy explored the delayed and disenfranchised grief over the death of her father. But as it turns out, that conversation broke her open and sparked a painful recognition of the unnamed neglect and emotional abuse by her mother. In today's episode, she speaks openly and vulnerably about coming to grips with the resulting trauma she endured and the difficult, oftentimes painful, but profoundly healing journey she's been on ever since. For her, art is essential for making that happen, which has resulted in a truly one-of-a-kind and deeply moving experiential art exhibition. I Was Already Everything features seven capes handmade from secondhand materials. Each cape represents a fragmented part of self, lost through trauma or societal conditioning, covering themes of grief, rage, loss, alienation, and abuse. Her work asks the question, what happens when we rediscover our lost fragments and put them all together in the same room? I can't wait for you to meet her. Y'all, this is such a special conversation that you're in for today. Chrissy, I'm so thrilled to be welcoming you back to the podcast. Welcome to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you for having me, Lisa Kay. (laughs) That's right. Chrissy T and Lisa Kay, (laughs) y'all may have heard at the top of the show, our connection and friendship has grown profoundly since our first conversation on the show which happened as the result of bumping into each other at a podcasting event. Um, a fateful meeting. A fateful meeting. <laughs> and um, I'm so thrilled to be having this conversation with you today. We're going to be exploring so much about the relationship between grief and trauma, highlighting and really expanding our view of the sources of grief that happen when we don't get a chance to experience the things we had the right to expect, which I think is one of the most profoundly sort of disenfranchised and unrecognized grief. We're going to talk about the healing power of creativity and our response to loss and trauma, which I think listeners know is a favorite topic of mine and, well, obviously so much more. But I'd love to start our conversation a slight different way than we do typically bringing my narrative therapy background sort of 
forward, I always invite guests to help us understand the roots of their grief beliefs by sharing the story of an early loss and how the adults were modeling uh, grief and what that taught you. But since you've been here before and given the topic of our conversation today, I wonder if you can, sort of on the spot here, think about an early loss, either a specific or sort of the general experience of loss in your growing up life. And if you could wave a magic wand and have them do something differently, what would you have liked to see and modeled for you in terms of grief and loss? Oh, wow. Um, well, I lost my, my father died when I was 11. And I shared on the, the last episode that we, the first episode we did together that nobody talked about it. It was as though he just disappeared. And I had no adult reach out to me. I had no offers of help. And then you just internalize it and bury it. So I would wish for someone who was mentally and emotionally capable to reach out to me and to talk to me and and continue talking to me. Don't just ask once. Don't just mention it once. Check back in. And knowing how adults don't know how to deal with grief. Think of a kid. You really need extra help and care. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, but just knowing that a door is open and and there's one or more trusted people you could talk to, that would have made an enormous difference. Yeah. Oh, I just felt kind of a skipping beat in my heart when you said that, that door open and that there's this, this place for people to walk through, I think is is so profound. And, you know, even though I do this for a living, I think about it, I talk about it, I think I continue to stumble over those expectations that we all have that there's like one right thing to say. And if we can all just get this one formula down, and what and that's why I think I had that sort of visceral reaction is really that's that creating that, that door opening, that invitation, and coming back to it again and again, as you said, it's not just a, hey, kid, if you ever want to talk about it, I'm here. It's like the door is open and I continue to show up at it and welcome you in, kind of to usher you in. And if you're someone out there who's looking to support someone in their grief, instead of getting hooked on the right words or the right display, take Chrissy's words to heart there in this vision of having a door open and just being welcoming. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a a touch, you know, like sending a text. Yeah. checking in. Um, yeah. It doesn't always have to be, I think people are so afraid of bringing up something really heavy yeah. and grief is really heavy, but yeah. just knowing there's somebody who's, who's saying, if you ever want to talk or just checking on you. Yeah. Grief is heavy. And I, I really do understand the fear. I mean, I've been a griever and a grief supporter more times than I can, can think. And I think the, the fallacy is that we don't bring it up because it's heavy is that the griever isn't already carrying the weight. But the truth is, the griever's already carrying the heavy weight. They're already thinking about the loss. And so, doing that tap, as you said, or opening that door or whatever that gesture is, is just simply saying, I see you. I see you're carrying the weight. Can I help you hold it for a while? Mm-hmm. You know. Another thing I learned from you is just to bring up the person's name who's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think there's a big fear around that, but no one ever 
uttered my father's name again. His name was never spoken. It's like he didn't exist anymore. And I actually, I'm, I thought of you when I was talking to a, a person I met at a party and my friend had told me his wife had passed and he brought up, he brought her up in passing. And I said, what did she like? And he lit up oh. and he didn't cry and he didn't have pain. He had an opportunity to talk about her and it doesn't have to be the sadness. It can be, well, what was he like? What was she like? Or yeah. what was he like? Or what was she like? Or what did she like? What was something yeah. that you did together? Yeah. I love it. That's so beautiful. That just mm, makes my heart skip. And I think, yeah, that that question that you might ask helps you as the griever integrate them into this continuing story of your life. You know, I think about my metaphor and the sort of like our work is sort of rewriting and living into this emerging story of our life. And if we grievers are in spaces where we can't talk about our person, if it's a death loss in particular, then how on earth are we going to carry them forward in our story? And that just makes me even think of the young Chrissy, when someone isn't bringing up your dad's name, how on earth are you bringing him forward in the story? Because we need our characters, you know, for that story metaphor with us, mm -hmm. you know, and they have a name. So I really, I really appreciate that. So we're here again today for lots of reasons, but in part because one of the things that happened in our conversation the first time around was exploring the what we were sort of talking about as the delayed grief of your father, in part because of what we just said, because it was sort of shut down and nobody talked about it. And there were some sort of notions about the way he died or the cause of his death. But in the course of that conversation, a new grief and even a new trauma came forward. Do you want to share a little bit about what, how you would begin to describe what that was and, and what that led to, which is a part of what we're going to be talking about today? Yes. I mean, I came, the story I had told myself my whole life and the story I expected to tell on your podcast is that I had grief because my father died when I was a child. And what I, through talking with you and through you holding space with me and asking questions, what emerged was the fact that I had never told myself the truth about how my mother treated me. Mm. Because there was this big, you know, you can point to the death of my father. And I had to go in survival mode. And I never told myself the truth about that. And what happened, I don't know, a month or so after telling that story and that, that kind of starting to create a, a realization or a shift in seeing my own life is that all that stuff just started pouring out. All these things that I had kind of hidden from myself to survive said, well, it's about time to, <laughs> about time to handle this. Yeah. You know, how about now? And wow, it is incredible what we can hide from ourselves just to keep going. Yeah. Astonishing. Because yeah. I lived it. I was there. <laughs> I was there. But I just, you know, you, you bury what, you need to, and you look away and you just keep going forward. So yeah. yeah, that stuff, it, it came back up. 
Well, um, you know, you and I have had this conversation off air. I feel um, it's a reminder of the responsibility of inviting people into safe spaces and to hold space. And so it's been such an honor and a privilege to watch you walk through and do the work as you've unearthed this and uh, metabolized and integrated this. But something you just said I want to point to that I think is so important for so many of us who have so many different layers of different sources of grief is that for many of us, we can point to this, the presence of something in a way, you know, like the death of someone is the presence of something. And so even though we struggle culturally to even acknowledge Mm -hmm. that, I would say there's something more accessible about that. But really what you're talking about, you unearthed with your mother is really the absence of something. And so many of us experience so much grief over the things we had the right to expect but didn't come to pass, including a nurturing, loving, caring relationship with a parent. It could be something like fertility, right? Something that comes to that we had dreamed of that doesn't come to pass. So I think for our own well-being and for the ways in which we show up for other people, being more attentive to the subtle absences as profound sources of grief as equal to the presence, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And it's almost harder for the person experiencing it to recognize it, especially as a child, because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't have until you start hearing from other, you know, hearing what other people had and, and feeling that weird longing if you see some interaction or the experience I had before and after my father died was neglect and emotional abuse from my mother. And I think it's complicated because, and this is changing a little bit, but there's not a lot of conversation about problematic mothers in our society. It's increasing lately, but you don't see it a lot in movies and TV and it's just not talked about. You've got the quote unquote deadbeat dad trope or the absent quote unquote absent father that is just there's more language around that so that that complicates it that makes makes it even harder to name and to talk about yes exactly it's that absence that makes you feel like there this must be me Mm -hmm. or this isn't and also you know to the degree that you want to sort of share the unfolding of what you went through as you began to reckon with the grief and trauma of your sort of revelation of this other loss of this neglect and this abuse is that if we sometimes don't see these absences for a very good reason, because we've had to enact a survival, our own sort of survival instinct to navigate a world, especially when we're young children, to feel some integration or some sense of safety or some sense of groundedness. And so it's not just that there's not the kind of global cultural conversations about the harm of these absences. The reason that we quote unquote hide it from ourselves, and I'm just saying this in case anybody's has already started to unearth this work or might even have a sense that this is coming for them, is is out of our own protection and and is a gift in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's not a gift that serves us over the course of our lives, but 
there's something really important that our body-mind is doing as it protects us from that place. So can you maybe talk a little bit about sort of coming to recognize the parts of you that kind of were fragmented, but also just the recognition that 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old Chrissy was doing what she needed to do to take care of herself in that world? Yeah. Um, I mean, it all it all kind of bubbled up in one evening and I had, I don't know what else to talk about, how, how else to describe it, but I had a mental break. I was talking to my partner, yeah. we were sitting on the couch and I suddenly, my psyche was in the kitchen where I lived when I was 17 years old. And I was looking at something that was yeah. very distressing to me. And I just, all that distress and loneliness and I was just subsumed by this emotion and this awareness. And I knew that I was in my home with my partner. I knew my body was there, but my awareness was being shown this moment when I was 17. And it lasted about, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes. And I never, I never lost the awareness that I was still in the present day. But when that, finished that was a gift because I could not do not pass go do not collect two hundred dollars like get a therapist you know this is not just a crying jag this is like I do not understand what just happened so um that I I got a therapist and I had the good instinct to know that I needed EMDR and it coincided with lockdown pretty quickly. So I, I, okay. The pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was able to go to therapy twice a week and just, I just decided, okay, I'm going to deal with this. And if I had had a full-time job, if I was raising children, if I had other responsibilities, I would not have been able to just immerse myself in it, but I just thought, let's take care of this. It's time. And yeah, that was, I feel like all the emotions I could not have when I was, not all of them, but because <laughs> it would take a lifetime, yeah. but they came. Th- that, <laughs> those intense emotions I could never feel before started showing up. Yeah. Well, you found a, first of all, you, you know, by, by hook or by crook or whatever, your body was like, uh, we're coming back for like, you know, <laughs> you're going to feel these, you're going to have these thoughts. But more, more importantly, you found a container, mm-hmm. a safe container to have those thoughts, which is why you didn't have them in the beginning because it wasn't safe in your childhood. And I, when I talk about this, I want to remind people when we talk about safety, we're talking about psychological, emotional, existential safety in addition to, it's not a, just about physical safety, but in this therapeutic setting with this trauma-informed therapist, you found some safety in that container. And that container is so profoundly important. I I also, in hindsight, had a safe container in my home. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I couldn't have done that before, you know, and and I think that that's why the timer went off and it was time, you know, because I had the, I had those surroundings. It's to have a safe space. You can't overestimate the importance of having a safe space. Absolutely. And, and 
you know, that experience that you described of being with your partner in your home. I know you've shared before that he was calm, he was present, he walked there through with you, you know, and that was yet another grounding, sort of a grounding mm-hmm. force that allowed you to be, to be in that. I want to begin to explore not only the therapeutic vehicle that was so profoundly important to you, of course, we, we need that in whatever form that takes, but I'm always curious around how people utilize the, I don't know what the word is, the sort of qualities, the skills, the intuitive knowing that they already have, because I think there's the both and of we need others and experts to facilitate the things that we don't know to create safe spaces. As you said, you're using being as part of the support multiple times a week over the span of months and months. And yet I think we all have some intuitive knowing, some intuitive way of processing, some skill set, some insight that we often discount. So that's all to say you've been an artist and a creator, you know, I probably came out of the womb that way, it feels, as I've gotten to know you over the years. And so can you begin to talk about that moment where that artistic you, that sort of artistic expressive you came alongside what you were discovering about the sort of different emotional states or different versions of yourself and began to give birth to what we're going to continue to talk about today. But when, when did the artistic part of you come alongside? this healing part of you? I don't remember exactly, but I had an extraordinary experience at some point. And yes, I was in therapy for about a year and a half and, you know, pretty intense for about a year. And I I would say maybe six or eight months into it, I would have to look back. Yeah. One evening, I just had a vision in my head that was so strong. It came out of nowhere. I wasn't in my art studio, it, but I saw it in a flash. And this has happened to me before. I do get information in visions or I, I'll see things, but I saw a room, a white room filled with capes. And I knew that each cape represented a fragment of myself that I had been reclaiming through this process. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish I could explain to you how foreign <laughs> this experience was. I had just, it, it, it didn't make sense to me at the time. It just yeah. was kind of, Even as an artist, because it was so complete, but also unlike anything you'd no, ever I mean, seen I, or done as an artist? I, I call myself an artist now. I have embraced my creativity now. And yes, I did come out of the womb as a creative being. I think we all do. But I lost mm-hmm. that. I, I had dream killers in my life. I had you know no support. I didn't have nurturing. And so I lost my creativity. So the last 10 years or so, I've been reclaiming it. And it's been challenging and difficult, but it's also, I feel like creativity is a safe place to encounter yourself. Yeah. And that is such a gift, what you can learn from your own creativity. And so as I've had the courage to pursue that, it has given me back incredible gifts, a lot of them of self-awareness. 
So yeah, I now see this vision was a type of premonition. <laughs> and I just couldn't make any sense of it at the time, but I had had visions in the past that I had followed. So I knew I had to follow it, but this white room looked like a gallery and I, I wasn't a gallery showing artist. I was just a person who used their creativity a lot. So it was a huge jump to even say, this is something I am going to do to complete this vision. Mm -hmm. But I, tried to ignore it for a little while. And then I just said, okay, I'll just see how this unfolds. And long story short, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about them. And I've had a chance to, I mean, I remember soon after having a conversation with you about your download and just you, I think the beauty, well, there's so much beauty about how you've walked through this time of, of healing and creativity, you know, alongside each other was, you had a kind of, I don't know what the word is, sort of like transcendent acceptance that it's okay that I don't even know how or it's going to unfold, but I'm, I'm along for, it's sort of like it felt to me as a friend and somebody watched you move through this. It's like, I'm sort of just going to be in my curiosity and just almost just allow this to unfold. And without this expectation of of outcome and and yeah it's been really beautiful to to watch faith comes in all forms and serves us in different ways across our lives when we come back chrissy describes the importance of her spiritual faith as critical to sustaining her both as she faced the trauma she endured and as a guide that led her to create one of the most powerful and exquisite artistic representations about bringing together the fragmented parts of ourselves as we heal. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. If you're looking for more grief support and education, or just curious what I'm up to outside of the show, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter today, by visiting lisakeefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why not so regular? Because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. I am a person of great faith. And this is not yeah. capital letter anything you know it's not religion yeah it's it's just a spiritual you know faith of some sort and man if i had to just count on human beings (laughs) i would not have made it this far i would have just i would have cashed out i just wouldn't have made it this far yeah so there's something you know whether that's a trauma response or just a gift i've always believed in something greater and there's and I can't explain any of it it's a mystery but there's definitely an element of that when I do receive these visions or I receive a creative vision I do attach my faith to it and I follow it and it often I end up learning something which is yeah yeah it makes it very worthwhile 
which is such a, an important goal. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the capes themselves, maybe even kind of, I think there's maybe seven or eight kind of different fragments of yourself they represent. But also, I'd love for you to sort of share a little bit of the wisdom that you've shared in writing, in accompaniment to the places that you've exhibited already, and even in our conversations, of the importance of why capes mm-hmm. as a representation of this, and why beauty, because mm-hmm. you really talked about sort of the importance of beauty in these capes. So tell maybe first tell a little bit about sort of the symbolism of that, and then help us to understand these different fragmented parts of, of yourself that you discovered, because I think certainly as a trauma survivor myself, as I looked at them and read about them, they definitely mirrored parts of myself. So I think our listeners might recognize some of these aspects too. When I saw that vision, I didn't know what the fragments were yeah. or, or what they looked like. So they unfolded. You knew they were capes. I knew they were capes. So each I just trusted that each fragment would show itself to me and it kind of did over time. But when something like rage shows up and man, I had to really reckon with rage in my therapy. And that's something I love talking about with women because I mean, truth be told, anyone who's experienced any type of injustice has rage. So it's not just women, but it's, there's not a clear, you see examples of rage in men and it's very destructive. You see it in movies all the time. You see, but for a woman, how do you channel your rage? Yeah. So that was one of the themes that came up. Grief was one of the themes that came up. So some of the fragments that were presenting themselves to me were dark. They were unwieldy. They were unpleasant. And I've never wanted to be very literal in my art and be like, I feel like garbage. Here's a pile of garbage. Like that's not my, I don't, I don't like looking at, um, well, that's not true. Um, it's just not something that, that I'm personally drawn to, to make something look ugly or macabre or to force a viewer to feel something really terrible. I really want to inspire and uplift people. So I finally just made a deal with myself that if I could make each cape beautiful, then I could tell the truth Mm. in each one. And beauty doesn't have to be perfection. There's, you know, you can see some mushrooms and rotting moss in nature that's technically decay, but it's still beautiful. So that was my standard. If I could present it in a beautiful way that Maybe that would be the open door to be able to communicate these things. I love that so much, that notion of the both and, you know, which we've talked about a lot on this show Mm -hmm. and kind of having the both and of creating the container that is beauty, which is not perfection, but which is beauty allows us to, again, have some door opening or some safety to also be with the beauty and the heaviness, the beauty and the darkness, the beauty and the decay. But with the decay comes, right, new growth and new healing. But mm-hmm. I love the notion that you created these capes. And as I said, I got to see some early exhibits of them and see the work. And we're recording today and I get to see a little a little bit of those behind you. Those capes and those aspects of yourself from rage to grief to 
the highly sensitive, the sweet girl. Was there one particular cape? I know you talked about sort of uncovering the materials, the secondhand source nature of them. Was there one particular cape that you can think about that was sort of an aha or an evolutionary moment when you found the material or when you sort of had the vision for what that one looked like? Or even just tell us a little bit about the experience of sourcing and creating and it, it really unfolded. And to be honest, to give myself permission, I knew that this was going to be quote unquote fine yeah. art. It was, and I, what I've done in the past is that I've done design and that design solves a problem or it functions, yeah. you know? And so, and you make something and you think, well, I can sell it for this much money and, you know, yeah. there's a purpose for it. And so I instinctively knew that these capes were going to take a lot of hours and literally no one wants to see these capes, you know, like there's no, there's no demand for this. People don't even, I don't even know what they look like yet. And that's what artists do a lot of times. You, you put all this time and energy into something because you have a vision or you're driven to do it. It's not because someone's asking for it. And that actually, most of these capes ended up taking 40 to 50 hours, I would estimate, in each one, which is, and you have to do that over a period of days, that doesn't happen in a week, you know, and I'm also, it's evolving, the the inspiration's evolving, the finding the materials, it's an evolution as you find the materials, so Sticking with myself and investing that time and my own inspiration was that was working on my own self worth, honestly. Yeah, I love the sort of duality of what's happening. It's like you're thinking, you know, from the outside of observer, we're thinking, oh, this just is an artist pursuing her craft. But the truth is, any creative endeavor we do, whether we call ourselves an artist or not, has the capacity or the potential for us to be unearthing, as you said, and evolving our own self-awareness, which is why I think creativity in this broadest sense of the word is such an important component of our healing tool. In the grief and loss course that I teach at University of Texas, I have an entire section on the creative response to loss. And I think, especially, you know, I've been talking about this recently, adulting, somehow we we lose that creativity. It's like adulting means the absence of creativity, but this journey that you're on shows us that creativity in itself has this self-awareness and this healing capacity. So I just. And you also can't leave that. We're all creative as kids. We're all allowed to be creative as children where it's natural. It's coming out of our pores and engaging our creativity as adults is a nice way to go back and get that little kid and let let them exist and and bring those parts of ourselves into this emerging story of our life. I love that. And at the nerdy neurophysiological level, creativity, of course, tells our fight or flight part of our system to settle down because if we can be creative and playful, then there's a sense of, there must be some safety in our space. So creativity Mm -hmm. for its very own, just for the very own consequence of it, first of all, of course, requires us to feel some sense of safety, but it also reinforces our sense of safety. So if you need another reason to be creative, I say, I say, do that. Friends, if you've learned something new from this series, 
or found it helpful in navigating your own grief, I sure would appreciate you heading over to Apple Podcast after the show today, leave a rating and write a review. Truly, it would mean the world to me. So I wanted to read this passage, if it's okay with you, from the zine that you wrote that accompanied um, the exhibit that you were able to do of the capes in Marfa. This passage in particular on the cape around grief um, was so viscerally resonant to me about the of tears and of sadness and the um, fear that we have around allowing it in and just being with it as it is. So um, it's quite, quite beautiful. You, you said this, Chrissy, when you start the real grief tears, not the surface sadness tears, but the real fat, hot, fortified tears of grief, you may be afraid they will never stop. You may be afraid of drowning. They overtake you and blind your vision. You can't see anything. You just feel that awful concave rent in your heart center. You touch it with your awareness and the ache encompasses you. You are consumed, adrift, awash in the lake, thrashing, gasping for air. Surely you will not survive this. Surely it will never stop. More and more and more, the tears are endless streams. They may erase you entirely, but they don't. They can't. Eventually, in your exhaustion, they ebb, and there you are, tossed ashore, barely breathing. The tsunami will come again, but the torrent will be a tiny bit more merciful, and you will be a tiny bit braver because you know you will survive, and you are the only one who can empty that deep well. Bucket by bucket, you will save yourself. I think I've reread that passage in particular seven or eight times over the course of the past few months that I've had this. What comes up for you even as you sit and listen to that? What reminder are you offering yourself even in your own grief? Or what might you say to the listener who can relate to that? That fear of, I remember saying, let me just say this. I remember saying to someone early on, a good friend of mine early on after my husband's death, I was, I can vividly remember laying on the floor beside my couch, knowing that the tears were coming. And I was on the phone with a friend. My seven-year-old daughter was in the other room. And I said, I'm scared if I go there, I'm never going to come back. I know that feeling. Yeah. And I think that's why we hide it. We push it away. We run from it. When it was clear to me that I needed to, that I that one of the capes was going to be representative of grief, because that was a fragment I had to reclaim. The feeling of grief to me was, if I start these tears, they will never stop. Yeah. And that's how I showed it visually in the cape. The cape itself is just encompassed in these kind of silvery tears that just surrounds you. And... One thing that I, one one of the greatest gifts I've had of following this vision, and like you said, I did, I exhibited them in March of 2022 in Fort Worth, and then I exhibited them in Marfa, Texas in July 2022, is that I've suddenly been able to talk 
about these things with strangers in a way that connects us. Yeah. It's no longer the shameful thing that I have to hide because it's going to clobber me or subsume me or I'm going to drown in it. I've, I've waded in those waters. I've gone through the fire and now I can display the symbol of it and invite people through my open door of the gallery and tell them four or five sentences. I mean, I tell them less than what you just read. And then people can, almost everyone, especially in Marfa, almost everyone opened up and shared something of their own experience. And it doesn't have to be the shameful secret. We can just say, we all go through it. I see you. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say more about not necessarily the stories that people shared with you, but about that sort of permission giving and space holding that, that being putting this out there, that being vulnerable has created or what you've learned from that experience? I used to think if I told people what happened to me, then they would know that I'm not worth anything or that, you know, that the shame was real. And as I've gathered the courage, and it's been a long process, but in this vision really pushed me into this way of sharing that I would have never come up with, with my own human brain. My human brain said no to this project like a hundred times, you know, but I, my faith and my following this vision is what took me into a realm that I could not have imagined. And what I, when I showed the capes in Marfa, I, I, I shout out to my friends at the Do Right Hall, which gave me a space. It's an old adobe church. It's just a big white room. And I was able to display the seven capes. And then people could come in. I invited them to read my artist statement. And then I offered, if they wanted, that I could take them around and tell them a little bit about each cape. And almost everyone wanted that. And what I realized kind of after the fact, because I'm just going on my intuition, is that I created an open door and I created a safe space. And I didn't tell a bunch of details. Every single detail is in the art, which is what's magical about visual art. I've put it all in there, but you're not going to know the nitty gritty about my life and you don't need to know. It was being able to talk to strangers and some friends about these subjects grief, rage, um, disappearing, which is about disassociating, mother, father, to talk about these big subjects in a safe space, in a symbolic way, elicited these responses of just humanness and, and universal experience so that the things that we think are the darkest things that separate us from everyone are (laughs) <laughs> I was not going to cry this. You time. absolutely can. This is your safe space. That's what unites us. If we're if we have the courage. Yeah. Absolutely. The symbolism of these capes and the fact that you didn't have to tell the sort of nitty-gritty of your experience, but that you extended them as a gift for other people to take in, allowed them to take and have their dark places 
meet yours in this light. And I think that's what's so profound and so powerful about the courage that you exhibited, not just to do the work, the internal work that you did, but to turn that into these, this, these things of beauty. And they are exquisite. I can't wait for my listeners to see this when this exhibit comes to your town. I think most profoundly, it allowed people to feel less alone, feel less isolated. You know, we th- I think about like the words of my friend John Powell, this othering and belonging, this tension that we have to feel, this sense of belonging. And this work that you did internally and externally in this exhibit allowed people to show up into the light and feel the sense of belonging, the both and, as we hold the truth of our shared darknesses. And that's... I mean, that's as profound as it gets, in my opinion. And that and that bringing it to the light that you're just talking about, that door opening that really is the sort of door opening that you did with this work, does make shame disappear and dissolve. And it's only then that we can do the healing. Yes, and I see how when someone shared their story with me, and again, it, it, it doesn't get too intense. It's It's couple sentences here and there but some people revealed a lot of people revealed things to me that they just didn't feel like they could reveal in a normal yeah setting and it was this mutual healing of because when I heard their for lack of a better word their secret or their shame or their story I just felt proud of them and I felt (laughs) love for them and I felt honored yeah so if that's how I felt towards them, I have to extend that to myself. I think about I think about my friend Dario Roblato too, who is an artist, and talking about sort of the empathy that is created and a part of these works of art that invites people to feel seen in the work and for us to witness the people who are seeing our work. And that's what you're really just talking about, this invitation to connect with our empathy, to connect with our compassion necessitates us offering that same gift to ourselves. And so it becomes its own, just like shame can kind of be its own vortex of downward, you know, darkening spiral. I think empathy and compassion through this experience that you're talking about has its own sort of self-fulfilling force towards lightness. And that's what I hear you saying and witness even in the in the work that you're offering yeah yeah it was I mean spending 40 or 50 hours to create a cape that represents rage or disappearing or dissociation or grief it's it's kind of becomes this I hate to say this about my own work but there there's a triumph yeah in in just showing this thing and putting all this time into it and showing it in a light that's beautiful, even though what caused it in me was dark, you know, and sad and all the, all the work I had to do to get to, to, to a place where I could envision it in a beautiful light. You know, we, we're all working on ourselves in secret, in the dark, in this, you know, we're, we're reading our books, we're listening to your podcast, (laughs) we're going to therapy and why not have a space where we can, 
share that self-growth and self-realization. In my artist statement, I say that I'm looking at trauma through the lens of post-traumatic growth. And that is where I am today. But I can, you know, I had conversations with people saying, I'm just a couple steps down the road from you. Yeah. And I'm just testifying from the same road a few steps further. Yeah. And that also gives them an invitation to keep going. Yeah. And I'm still, I mean, the road is endless. Please. We're, <laughs> it's never ending. As long as we're here <laughs> in these, you know, in these yes. bodies, in these, um, in this realm, we're evolving mm -hmm. and growing. But I, I love the symbolism of the, of the, and this term always bothers me, which is why I'm hemming and hawing this meaning making, but the story, the evolving story that really is the work of our growth, whether we're at that sort of post-traumatic growth state or just the work of our growth and healing as we evolve as humans and the symbolism that we, that you can hold this truth that uh, the source of these beautiful capes was this dark, hard place. And yet mm -hmm. you can be with the beauty of that, the wisdom and the insight and the growth and the compassion that comes from that. And I think that's so important because we tell a story to ourselves. The world tells us the story that they're very separate. And I think the most beautiful things that have ever been created in the world are things that are created from some place of working through some unearthing of something, you know? So that's that's what's really captivated me about this journey that you've been on and about the capes as they've come to be in this exhibit space, which, as you said, weren't created for some outcome. They weren't created for some sale purpose. They weren't created for, right? They were just about a door opening to inviting mm -hmm. people in. So that's just profound. And what you're saying about the fragments of, of we fragment these things off because we feel like they're unacceptable, yeah. like grief or rage, for instance. And when rage visited me, it seems like it seems like a no-brainer, like, oh, no, I don't want yeah. rage. <laughs> no, thanks. Let me just yeah. get rid of this, right? Like, let me just cut this off. And I thought, man, I have to reckon with this. And how can I, you know, I've tried decades of my life being cut off from it. <laughs> that hasn't worked. So what does it look like if I allow the existence mm. of this? And it took me a while and I had to experience it. It, it rocked through my body. You know, I, a lot of my therapy experience was very emotional and energetic, but I finally realized Rage exists. It's in me. It's not going away. So I'm making my own peace with it. And the phrase that came to me eventually was an elegant rage, mm -hmm. which is that I can let it exist inside my body, in my core. And if somebody touches it, I don't have to spill forward. I don't have to throw it on anyone. It's contained within me. But they'll know yeah. when they touch it. I don't even have to raise my voice. Yeah. And and that allowing it to exist is a form of having your own power. Yeah. And the the symbol I used on 
my rage cape was the scorpion. Because when the scorpion shows up and lifts his stingers, yeah. you back away. You, you're, you're not going to go tangle with him. And so I, I'm at peace with, <laughs> I'm at peace yeah. with my rage. Yeah. It's there, but same thing with, you know, part of my, so my survival system in an unsafe Trump traumatic home was that I dissociated yeah. and I had to make peace. That is a, a very strange thing to grapple with and it can still happen under, you know, the wrong circumstances. But as you said, to mirror back what you said earlier in the conversation, that was for yeah. my protection. So I can, I can thank it. I can say, I know you're here for a reason mm -hmm. and then do my best that it doesn't happen in this part of my life, but I can't be embarrassed about it or ashamed of it. It, it yeah. helped me. Yeah. Well, the, these capes and the sort of exhibiting of them all together, again, at the external level, but of course, as a result of the internal work you did is really about showing up as your full integrated, authentic self. Right. And that's, and that includes our dissociative parts and our rage filled parts and our loving parts and our compassionate parts and all the parts of us. You know, you entitled it, I was already everything. And I thought there's so much beauty in the sort of holding true all of these aspects of ourselves, even the parts that we have yet to befriend or to acknowledge or honor the more that we can come to, and those parts of ourselves are evolving, by the way, you know, like, and our relationship with them is, is ever evolving. That's the healing work. But I just love that phrase just really resonated for me. How did, how did I was already everything come to you? I have no idea. <laughs> I was yeah, in the middle of making my that. capes and I have a couple of notebooks in my art studio that I just wrote a couple pages in and then discarded, but they're all in. And so I was looking for a notebook to make notes and I opened up this one notebook and saw that phrase that I had written down. Don't remember when or why. Yeah. And I said, this is my title. So I don't know. I mean, you definitely time travel yeah. when you go through therapy. <laughs> and I yeah. just, it was yes. like a future note to self that there was my title right there, all ready to go. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. Well, I want to pivot to thinking about you know, these works have been already exhibited twice. I know you're looking for new exhibit spaces, and I can't wait for this to come to a city near you, listeners. So if you know of or have an exhibit space, we're going to share how to reach. But I also know you've been exploring the notion of creating pieces that people can have. Tell me a little bit about how the art is evolving and, and what the listeners might want to know. Well, the seven capes and the I was already everything exhibition, I do want to share in other places. So those are not for sale in this moment, but I'm still making capes. And, and the, the theme that came through for the capes I'm making right now is exquisite self. So anything that you put on that just makes you feel exquisite internally, not yeah. Not fancy. This is not high end. It's just like an internal glow. Yeah. And that's where I'm working from. So those I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be showing them in 2023 in New Orleans and in Marfa. And those will be okay. for sale. Okay. Um, but yeah. I, 
I just love, I love the process of making them. They're all one of a kind secondhand materials still for now. And it's yeah. still inspiring me. I love that. I know you shared too, the secondhand material, I mean, has been a part of your work as an artist all along, not just with this project, but this notion of sourcing and having them find you, but also I think the sort of parallels of the secondhand materials is they, they were already there, mm-hmm. right? And to incorporate them, I think is so profoundly beautiful. There's no, there are no throwaway things. We've got to take them back and, and integrate them. And, and there just, are no throwaway people and there yeah. are no throwaway parts of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. Well, if listeners want to maybe in the future, you know, because the show will be uh, living on air in perpetuity, purchase the pieces of your work or learn more about where your work is going to be exhibited in 2023 and beyond. Or if you are a curator of a gallery space or a museum and are looking to bring this really important and universal conversation about these um, parts of ourselves get lost and can be reclaimed, where, where should people find you? Where can people learn more about you? You can find me under my design moniker, which is featherweightstudio.com. That'll be easier to remember than trying to spell (laughs) chrissytegerstrom.com. Either one, you can find me. That's incredible. And of course, listeners, as I always do, I will drop those links in the show notes for today's episode. Chrissy, what an honor it has been to be in conversation with you here on air for a second time. What an honor it's been to be your friend all these years. And for those of you who don't know, I'm going to give Chrissy an extra little shout out. She is really the reason that I am showing up in the world the way that I am as a grief activist, as a podcast host, as an author, as a speaker. She's been my creative consultant and confidant all the way around. And she encourages me to remember that I am already everything every day. So thank you, Chrissy, for all of that and so much more. It's my honor, Lisa Kay. Thank you, Chrissy T. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I want to give a shout out to Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show and to the team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.